Suppose nature gave a war and everybody came. The snakes, the birds, the lizards and frogs. And suppose that the polluters, the species on Earth called man, were the enemy in that war. Welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, or as I like to think of it, Night of the Living Frogs. In this episode, I go foraging for frogs with Elena Reagan of Chicago's acclaimed Elizabeth Restaurant. It's a long drive, so we have a lot to talk about in regards to the trendy subject of foraging for food. Then, as Next looks back at Grant Atkinson's origin story with its trio menu, I talk to Henry Adenia, the man who hired Grant Atkins the third time. What's the state of wine in Chicago? What's the state of wine writing in Chicago, as in, is there any? I talk with retailers Craig Perman and Shebnam Inja, and writer John Leonard about that. And I told a story recently, at a Between Bites event, about my youthful days as a proto-foodie and how a Mexican bar changed my life. That's all in episode 14 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, where the most dangerous creature is man. So I should point out in this first piece, I tag along with a chef as we go looking in the woods for food. Four-legged food that doesn't come in styrofoam packages. In other words, this is a hunting story, and there's lots of -of matter-of-fact talk about hunting and prepping animals for eating in it. So be aware of that before you listen. Now here's the story. Poison Ivy's still out. Oh man. Yeah, but you should be okay around here. Unless you're grabbing stuff. I'm walking around a golf course in Crown Point, Indiana, in total darkness. Flashlight in one hand, microphone in the other, and a camera around my neck, hunting for frogs. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time when Elena Reagan, chef-owner of Chicago's Elizabeth Restaurant, suggested it. Foraging for wild things to add to menus is a hot trend at the moment, as evidenced by the acclaim for Copenhagen's Noma, ranked one of the best restaurants in the world for its Nordic cuisine built on native berries, twigs, even lichen. Reagan actually just went to Noma a few weeks ago, but she grew up foraging in this area, so for her, foraging isn't a hot restaurant trend. It's just what you do. The adventure begins outside Elizabeth, in Chicago's Lincoln Square neighborhood, where I was picked up by Reagan, her girlfriend Tanya Pierce, and her dog, a little puffball named Grizzly. As we head toward Lakeshore Drive, and then the Skyway to Indiana, she tells me about the last time she brought foraged frogs into the restaurant. I had all the frogs in a cooler, and I opened the cooler, and one jumped out and started hopping down the alley. I call them at Rainbow Ties back door. I've had frog legs plenty. I've had them fresh. I don't think I've ever had them this fresh, but they're really hard to get fresh. When we first opened Elizabeth, I, you know, was inquiring with a lot of the fish purveyors if they had them. And most of the time they just came in big, you know, one kilogram blocks. 
frozen solid or yeah just frozen solid we never really came across any that were really choice as far as I mean as far as I thought or you know just they always had that mushy quality because of being frozen so I don't know where where places get them when they get them really nice and fresh I mean they still might be like that one time like I said we got them and they were were kind of decent so um, but they were always really hard to come by so you could probably get as close to them to grab them if you're fast with your hands but a lot of times I think you know they still sense your presence so they hop away so that's why we use the gigger which is like the prong or the spear that gets them um I didn't know that was where frog gigging came from. I just knew that it was frog gigging. Yeah. yeah. But you gotta say it like that. Gigging. Gigging. Frog gigging. Gigging. But they're still alive because they're extremely resilient. And, you know, Getty, the, the, uh, my friend who goes with us, who was showing her and I how to do it, he, um, He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. They don't feel things the way that we do because, you know, obviously we're like, oh my God, we're just stabbing them. We're not killing them. They're still alive. So who knows? I mean, I don't know. Don't run that by any vegans or vegetarians or PETA. They won't like that. <laughs> but he also said, like, when you got them cold, they went dormant. Well, yeah, so that's what I did when I got back to the restaurant since they were still moving around. Clearly, you know, hadn't died from any of the puncture wounds or bled to death, so I... <laughs> Sounds horrible. I froze, I took them, and I put them in my freezer. So essentially, I just, like, froze them to death. He kept telling me, he said, just chop off their heads. And I said, yeah, but if they are alive and I grab them and chop off their heads, you know, are they gonna like try to jump away afterwards? And he said, yeah, sometimes. So I was like, okay, I'm not, too, I'm not doing that then. But uh, I, I, I froze them essentially till they went really dormant because, I mean, that's what they do for the winter, I think, is they just bury themselves at, deep down in the mud and they kind of freeze themselves to death. So that didn't necessarily kill them by any means but that way I was able to you know take them out one by one and chop, <laughs> chop off their heads without them running away but anyways they made really delicious frog rings he is a childhood friend of mine I don't know maybe like four or five years ago we reconnected on Facebook and, you know, realized we had a lot of the same interests, mushroom hunting and uh, cooking and other things. And he's just a, he, in Indiana, he's a, he maintains a couple golf courses. The first time, you know, we met again as adults, he said, well, I have some venison from, you know, deer, I have some leftover, you know, I have too much I'm not going to use. He said, do you want some? And this is when I was doing the dinners at my house. And um, I said, yeah, sure. So he gave me some venison loin and I cured it and dried it and made jerky. But he hunts all season long. So as soon as the season starts, because that's when the golf season pretty much ends. So he has more free time during the colder months. And so he 
Why didn't he say like every day that there's something he'll he'll go? Well, out he said for? he took he'll take like a vacation, like what a month or two months, and hunt every day, mm-hmm. and like every season and every day he can find Stop. something different to hunt. He's hunting. He said he'll hunt anything. Yeah. Where'd you get the bear from? It was um, from Jess's dad in Alaska. Oh, So is this close to where you grew up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the thing I like about the frog gigging is it's pretty easy. It's not like when you go out to hunt you know, goose or deer or anything and you, well, for me at least, don't come back with anything except <laughs> mushrooms and pine cones. <laughs> 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 the frogs are, you know, last time we got, I don't know, Maybe like 15 or 16 of them, and we could have collected a lot more. We just tired. Yeah, it was late, and we were just out having fun. I mean, I did, I did serve them to some of my guests who, you know, I asked them. I said, "Hey, I have some frog legs. Do you want to try them?" You know, some of my regulars, and of course, they wanted to have them. But they were, yeah, the meat is extremely uh, sweet. So it doesn't really have that fishy quality or taste that you sometimes get from frog legs. It just kind of tasted sweet and really tender. It obviously didn't have, it had a little bit of a bite to it because it didn't, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was still soft because it's a soft, tender meat, but it didn't have that squishiness that the frozen ones can have. We get onto the Skyway and cross over the Illinois border then start winding through the towns on the Indiana side. After a bit, we arrive in Hobart, Indiana, to pick up Elena's friend, William Sikora, better known as Getty. A groundskeeper for several local golf courses, he has a hot tip on another one whose water hazards are said to be full of nice, fat frogs. He comes equipped with his own gigger, sort of like a five-foot-long fork, which he stretches between us in the back seat. Okie dokie. Sorry, Mike. I'm Getty. Yes, we do. We're going to be separated by this line here. All right. <laughs> you get out of hand, you're going to get the pointy end, all right? <laughs> and just take this through this stop sign, go straight, and on the next stop sign, take a left. As we drive the last stretch to Crown Point, we talk about how what they do naturally, foraging, has become a fine dining trend. I have been reading a lot about the new foraging craze and stuff like that. And those, those, those are popping up everywhere, so it must be nice to be one of the pioneers. Yeah, but I think the thing about that is, is like people can sure they can buy it from others or right. buy things that are cultivated that are typically from the wild, but nobody. I don't think a lot of people do it at the level that we do. One, because they don't know what to get. You can't just be a chef. Right. The, the chef like, knows what he wants. Forage. But he has a, a guy, a runner, to go hunt it down for him. I see that a lot on the uh, food networks, where there's always one guy that right. he's the go-to guy. Maybe that'll be me in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do? I'm, I'm a gopher. Yeah. I just go, like, rustle up stuff in the woods. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, like you were saying that one time, like, unless you're going out and getting it yourself, you're not going to get really neat things, you no. know? And, like, if you want the best meals there are, you better go get it yourself. Yeah. 
things that are I like know, for that you can gather. I mean, it's not. It's also not easy to forage and clean, and the foragers oh, half no. the time don't want to clean it. And then, you know, unless you have a big staff and you know what you're looking for and cleaning them, you know, I just, I don't think it's the trend that people think it is. It's either no. you do it because you love it and you know how to do it, or whatever you, you try to do it. So, like, how much of the stuff you get into the restaurant is foraged? Uh, well, over the summer, it was a lot, but that was because I was going out, you know, like, maybe every other week and collecting stuff myself, so, I mean, we had whole dishes based around, you know, we had one dish that was just milkweed soup, or one dish that was just the milkweed pods, or the hen of the woods mushroom that's in season now, um, so sometimes it's an entire dish, and then a lot of times it's just like an accompaniment to something else or whatever the case may be. But over the summer we had we had quite a bit. I would say at least like fifty to sixty percent of the menu was, and course based around one forage item. Am I just going to the drive-through for a coffee? Does I would anybody, like it. Anybody else want a coffee? I'm just going to get a bottle of water or something. Yeah, so we're talking about foraging as we drive through the drive through at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, may I have a small coffee? But right, like, even like when we went to Noma or Relay, like, it wasn't like that was the focus. It was, the, it was like about it being local or, you know, it was like this fish from this place or... You know, even the, when he said we were like, oh, those flowers were beautiful, and Ryan was like, oh, yeah, those are all forged. But no, it was like barrage and pansy flowers. You know, they weren't all forged. You know, I, I think that people have just latched on to some certain terms and kind of go with it. Kind of crazy to think, like that's just how people used to eat, and now it's like a phase. It's not a phase. I don't think it's. A, no, it's not what I meant to say. I mean, a fad. Fad. I was say but that. I don't even think so either, because I think a fad is ramen, right? Yeah. I think that's more of like a fad or a trend, and this is more like. I mean, Lifestyle. maybe. Maybe it could be, I mean, but, or maybe I just think differently about it because, like, Getty, like, he, you've always hunted, right? But My now everybody life. wants hunted meat on their menu. I've always foraged or grown stuff, and now everybody wants it to be foraged or local. You know what I mean? So, like, we wouldn't, he doesn't see, like, you know, frog hunting as a trend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, it's definitely not something people will go, I think I'm going to try that. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, we're good. Thank Can you. I get cream and sugar? Can we have cream and sugar for the coffee, please? Thank you. Yeah. I don't know. I just always remember Thank us you. like going out and collecting chanterelles from my grandpa's farm or head of the woods, and that's kind of how we cooked. And I think I just started, like, when I started my underground, I had no idea what, was or new Nordic cuisine, but I was still putting morels I found in Ten of the Woods and things I grew in my backyard on my menu because I was like, well, that's what I know 
how to cook, you know, or grow things. So, um, yeah, people often ask, like, do you think, you know, this is a trend or is it going to, you know, is it going to be a trend? Is a lot more people going to be doing it? And I said, once people, like, particularly chefs, start to, you know, if they try to go and forage themselves with all the, like, the time and the pain in the butt it is and the poison ivy and the mosquitoes and the cleaning it and, you know, harvesting cleaning it, I was like, no, <laughs> it's not going to be, it's not going to be a trend for long. Either you do it or you don't. When we get underneath, see that sign right there on the right that we're going to be parking in front of the, the fence up there we'll just pull right in front of it just like this is fine okay. you have an ink pen so i can like write a little note on the car for when the cops get here and they go where are they at <laughs> and what are they doing <laughs> we're gigging <laughs> we're gigging Getty's friend has left us a map of the golf course, and we make our way to the first pond. You saw a little one? Yeah, so that means that the little ones are out, the big ones gotta be somewhere. Oh yeah, I just saw one too. There's another little one. There's another little one. They're all over the shore. There's a bunch of them. He's not moving much either. Medium one. Uh, still it's a baby. Alright, this one's the bus. Let's head over to the next one. Tell you where we're looking, alright? Yeah. He's right, right in there. See his eyes? Yep. Alright, Stunner, here's your weapon. Let me hold the cuff. Oh, I'm getting him? Because <laughs> you want me to get him. Are you doing the first one? Uh, there you go, Stunner. Oh, he moved pretty fast. We got him! We got him! He's cute. He's doozy. I hope it stays this way all night. It's awesome. Alright. Where's the bag, lady? So how much of your food do you think you go out and get? Uh, I would say almost... Every week I eat something that I caught. At least once. And in the winter time, probably three times a week. Why is it more in the winter? Because hunting season is in the fall. So I get enough to where I can basically I don't even have to go to the grocery store. There's a good one. Got one! A doozy. Yeah, we saw some little ones. You got me right in the eye. Bag lady. Yeah. Oh. Oh, right here. Oh my God, it's huge. I love white right. towels. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my God, he is. Oh God, he might get off. Yeah. I barely got him. <laughs> oh, dang it. He was huge. He was a doozy. Doozer. It's a doozy. Man. Well, we got our story on the big one got away so far. 
In about an hour and a half, we've caught about 20 big frogs, all in the plastic bag that Elena carries in one arm, her dog in the other. Now the question is, what to do with them? How do you turn frogs, caught the way Daniel Boone might have caught them two centuries ago, into fine dining? Three days later, I get a message from Elena inviting me to stop by the restaurant to see what she's made. I made a savory buttermilk custard, and um, these are little nasturtium berries. We got a nasturtium from Seedling Farms, and uh, we, we have some that we use this year, but he brought, we're kind of getting low, and he brought us a, a lot. Looks like he just hacked down the plants. Um, so I, I picked off some of the, the little pretty ones and the seeds. So I was really happy, even though we got these big, huge clusters of them that um, don't look like they're in the best shape. What we ended up getting was all the little nasturtium berries, which are really nice. So I made a dill pickle pretty much exactly like the one Getty was talking about. So okay. I. I also got some of the dill flowers from seedlings, because uh, again, ours has turned to seeds. So. The f- leaves look like uh, lily pads, yeah. I know, so that, that was the idea, yeah, I take so it. so I couldn't not do that. I was compelled. So that's, that's it. That's all, uh, that's all I'm putting in it. We just had to test one ourselves. So yesterday, I cleaned them up. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before? And skin them. Those are pretty awesome. I mean, look at the big thighs. They got these wonderful little toes. Nice calf muscle. <laughs> Last time I did it, I just coated them with uh, a little bit of flour and then butter sauteed them. But I want it to be a little bit of a cleaner presentation I feel like the flour gets it a little bit mucky so I'm just doing it without we tasted all of them today we had a little experiment run and it's um it tastes like I don't know like a little bit uh it has the sweetness of crab meat, like of a really nice piece of Alaskan king crab. Um, and what else? But it, not really the fishiness. What uh, else, What would you think, Lou? No fishiness. You get a lot of, you get like, um, like earthy herbaceousness, kind of. Like you, you would expect yeah. out of like a I seaweed, you know? Like, not to the point of like an umami, but very earthy, very, yeah, herbaceous. Right. And then I like to put in the, this part just to be a little bit um, morbid. <laughs> this part being the, uh, the actual the foot. frog foot. <laughs> Luke, he, that's the part he ate and he said, oh, this shank has a lot of bones. <laughs> this frog shank. <laughs> and at last our frogs are a dish. Elena's made a little woodland scene inside a glass terrarium. Moss, leaves, flowers, and the foot and toes of a frog poking up in the middle. It's how a child might represent our frog-gigging adventure, but not a city child raised on fantasy. A farm kid acquainted with the life and death of creatures from an early age. A kid who grew up knowing that if you want the best meals, you have to go get them yourself. Thank you.
The best superhero stories are always the origin stories. And so when Chicago's next looked back to Grant Ackett's first head chef job at Evanston's Trio from 2001 to 2004, I wanted to talk to the man who made it happen. Owner Henry Adnia made Trio one of Chicago's top restaurants for 15 years, and you can find my full interview with him at The Reader. But I particularly like this segment about the process of hiring Ackett's because I think it gives a really frank look at how you prove your value as a young person and land a top job like this, and how close it came to not happening. The story begins when Trio's chef, Sean McLean, announced that he was leaving to start his own restaurant, Spring. What I ended up doing was, you know, I, I posted this uh, national piece you know, ad or something like that, some internet thing. And um, I was like, oh, yeah, it's just a Hail Mary, see who responds. And Rick, I mean, excuse me, uh, Grant had sent in an application. And I see here this 27-year-old, he's, you know, he's been at the French Laundry, oh, that's really good. And it's like, you know, I'm going to have some young kid, cocky guy who's working for, obviously, a great restaurant. But, you know, do I want it? I threw it out. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want this <laughs> And um, so time passed, maybe a month or two, and I'd been interviewing people. I was just not impressed with anything. And um, what 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 happened was somebody here, a purveyor, uh, called and said, "You know, you should probably talk to that guy." And I, um, well, so I did. I read. I did some. I did an email. I said, "Yeah." like what are you about i want to get a feel of them but i really did it half-heartedly not really expecting anything and um what what i what i did was start a dialogue with him i, I asked him a hundred questions you know like why do you do this what's your vision and like to get a sense of who he was and he's a very eloquent writer and so in that email dialogue you know, the first battery of answers that came back were like, "Whoa, this is this is not just some young punk looking to take on a uh, a uh, you know a prominent restaurant chef position." So I continued that, and um, eventually it led to uh, you know it's like, "Hey, why don't you come out for a tasting?" I was going to fly him in, and. Uh, made all the arrangements the week of, he says, I can't come. I'm sick. I'm like, eh, there you go. <laughs> it's like, one of these guys was like, fine, talk it up, write the ticket up, no problem, stay home. Yeah, you're sick. And, and I kind of wrote it off again there. But he calls like two days later, says, I'm coming. I was like, all right, all right I'll, I'll follow it up for it. And uh, of course, he arrives. He looks like he's dead. You know, knowing Grant today, it's like he'd have to be on his deathbed not to do anything. I mean, he has amazing stamina, but he was truly 
pale and frail and just, I was like, oh my God, this guy really is sick. <laughs> but he pulled off a flawless tasting. I mean, it was sound, it's precise. It was Thomas Keller, you know, all the principles of, you know, just an incredible chef where he exhibited. But then we talked and then he had his list, his wish list of stuff. And it was like changing everything. You know, like <laughs> everything had to change. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. You know, it was going to be risky to begin with, with his food, because it was, you know, when I went to the tasting, it was like, oh, this is amazing food, but uh, I don't think anybody's going to understand this. Uh, you know, Chicago just doesn't do that kind of thing. So I wrote him back and said, listen, you're great, blah, 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 but I, we can't do this. It's too much too much to invest in and it's especially when coupled with the risk uh and then that lie and i kept interviewing i kept not finding the right people and uh i I think a couple months must have gone by and i said you know what after seeing all the other applicants this is the only thing that really gives me any like uh like any verb of like i want to do this and so i i reconnect with us and let's talk let's try to negotiate it out and we did and we you know the rest is history okay let's take care of some business before we start the second half there are lots of links to the things we talk about here in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. And you know what else is there? The lizards and frogs. No, that's not right. What else is there is 13 past episodes. So if you missed me talking to Michael Nagrant or riding with Philip Foss's food truck or talking with the lovely Nigella Lawson or whatever, check out the past episodes. And remember, the thing that helps me and encourages me to keep doing this is when you subscribe at iTunes or Stitcher or other things that you can find the links to at the show post. And when you tell people about the show and bring me new listeners. So please, pass this episode along to somebody, check out past ones, and whatever you do, don't go near the pond. They're out there. When's the last time you read a Chicago restaurant review really talk about the thing that's part of almost every fine meal? The wine. Who's writing about that? Some local wine figures all raised this question recently in the media, and I decided to get them together to talk about it. So we are here at uh, Perman Wine Selections, which is a retailer in the West Loop and supplier to the trade. And first up, we have Craig Perman, who I noticed on Facebook, you say both owner and chief wine critic. Yeah, there you go. I guess uh, there's always a little bit of criticism when it comes to wine. So that makes one one wine critic in the entire city. (laughs) That's one of the things we're going to talk about. And then we have Shevnam Inja. Okay, I got it right. Uh, You were sommelier, I got that right too, at uh, Henri and the Gage and I don't know, probably a bunch of other places. Um, yeah, I've been in retail before. I've been in the restaurant industry since, two th- maybe it was 97. I can't remember. I think when my son turned two. And then uh, two years ago, I really wanted to change my hours, so I joined Craig here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And then uh, my friend John Leonard, who writes for Chicagoist about wine as of what, June, May? When was May. It? May. May started, May. started doing that. Okay, so there is a wine writer in the city of Chicago. Yay. Okay, so all this started with Craig talking about uh, wine writing on Facebook and then you, Sheb, posting on your blog shortly after. Uh, I have your quote here. Oh, uh, the quotes always come back to bite yes. you, right? <laughs> I think this has been mulling in us for a while. It both sort of exploded on social media at the same time. It did sort of come out that way, it seemed like, yeah. So there's an article by Eric Asimov in the New York Times yeah. talking about uh, 10 different restaurants and what he liked about their wine list, mm-hmm. basically. And you said... I said, can, can we clone Eric Asimov? This is why Chicago has mostly pitiful wine lists. Sorry to the few that have great ones. You know who you are. No one to call out those that have gone the way of selling off their list to the highest bidder or not investing in a good wine person. Even more important, no one to praise the few that are putting tons of time, investment, and other resources towards having a great list. So, sounds like you have a problem with both lists and wine writers or the lack thereof. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's start, let's start by talking about the lists. Okay. Um, what's, what's the situation with lists as you see it? Well, I think, I think there are, obviously, I, in, in, in parentheses, I put, you know, sorry to those that have good lists. I mean, we do have good lists. But when I, when I feel like, you know, I go to places like New York or I go up to Montreal, I have a lot of wine industry friends up there, I feel like there's a, a higher percentage of quality lists to the amount of quality uh, restaurants that there are. And I've, and I've just felt for a long time that in a lot of ways there's a, a disconnect with restaurants in Chicago where you have a, a restaurant where, you know, we know where the beef comes from. It comes from Slago Farms, or we know about seedling and the great ingredients that they use from that farm. But then when it comes to the wine list, there's that little bit of a disconnect where maybe it's all larger producers, maybe it's all producers from one distributor, um, like Southern Wine and Spirits, which is one of the largest wholesalers in the country, which is definitely uh, takes a position and definitely owns a lot of wine lists when you, when you look and see. So my, my feeling was that I think that there are some really good wine lists in Chicago, Uh, But I think that there's a lot of improvement that we could make and that there is this disconnect. And I'd like to see a lot of those same restaurants that go the way of, you know, really investing in a chef to also really invest in their wine program. I think that's kind of the the main point. So John's nodding. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I tend to notice as a consumer of the wine list is... Just the service in general, wine service in general in this city is not what it ought to be given the quality of the restaurants that we have in town. I mean, I always say, look, I spent $100 on this bottle of wine. You're going to serve it to me in this 98-cent glass? It's like you're not going to make the chef serve your $28 entree on a paper plate. Yeah. And, you know... I mean, I'm not going to say the restaurant, but a few years ago I was in a Michelin-starred restaurant in Logan Square, and the poor girl, she had never opened a bottle of wine before. That's not her fault, but it was awkward, and so I actually showed her how to open a bottle of wine. Like, <laughs> and, and a lot of that may come back to the fact that, you know, Chicago is so beer and cocktail focused, you know? It, yeah. It's almost like 
the man, this 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 young lady's manager, didn't even bother showing her because well, we're gonna sell beer and cocktails. Yeah, it's if not we, important. If, if we yeah, if we get a, if we get a, someone who needs to open a bottle of wine, we'll figure it out when we get to it. Well, John just jumped through most of the questions on my list here. So I'm let's, sorry. That's all right. It's not the first time I've done that to you. <laughs> so let's, let's back up uh, through a few of these. First off, so if you're seeing bad lists out there, what's a good list? What's the difference? I think it's pretty apparent when love and time has been put into a list. Um, I've been looking, it's interesting, because I've been looking at steakhouse lists in Chicago, because they're, they're particularly odious when it comes to sort of being monofocused on really large producers. And it's interesting because there are a few gems in the, if you look at the top 10 of cranes or whatever, you can see where the love is. And I think it's just things that aren't obvious, maybe someone that you don't know it, but it's clear that things have been tasted and organized in a way that's interesting. Maybe even a little bit of writing sometimes goes a long way, like because then there's a personal like uh, piece on the menu. And that's I, for me. And I think that shows where they've invested in a wine person in that restaurant. I mean, that was a key part of that that quote that, that I read was just the the investment in a wine person and and somebody saying, okay, here you go, take ownership. Because for me, a good wine list is a wine list that comes from. Uh, someone's point of view. I mean, I'm never going to criticize somebody's palate. Okay, they have that wine. I don't like that wine. That makes that list bad. No, I don't think so. If that comes from their personal point of view of, you know, this is where, this is what goes well with our food, or this is my particular point of view of the wine world, then then I think that's, that's great. But where, where we fall off is that I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of wine people in Chicago but there's not a lot of active wine sommeliers on the floor. I mean, Chev was an exception to that. I mean, there's a few restaurants around town, whether it's, you know, Spiaggio with Rachel Lowe or Chev, the former, you know, who used to be at Gage and Henri, um, you know, Arthur Hahn at Sepia. Those are, those are some really, uh, Liz Mendez from Vera, those are some really good names of people that are, are there and selling wine and have a very focused list. But how much of that is coming from the customers, too? I mean, I think particularly with the steakhouses, you know, you got guys in there who are going to want the big... They're going to want the silver oak and the opus one. I think that you can... A, I don't think that there are actually that many customers. I think those cut those lists are created and you're kind of forced to buy them because there's nothing else. Honestly, I think that that demographic is changing. But I also think that you can have things on a list. Actually, I just looked at the RPM stake, the new RPM set. Uh, and Richard Hanauer and Ryan Arnold worked on that, and they did a really interesting thing because they plugged in those things that you know that those guys that eat steak. I eat steak, but that's not the wine you drink. Um, like, but then in between, you can see all these like really brilliant little placements of like wine that are is for wine lovers and not for people that just want to drink their points. It's like Weight Watchers for dudes, you know, like. <laughs> So that's a great list for, for if you love steak and you like steak houses, you, you have the best of both worlds. Okay. Yeah. Now, you guys have a unique perspective on, on wine lists, though. When a consumer walks in and looks at a list, I don't know what comes from yeah. Southern or what yeah, comes that's true. from, that's true. from uh, you know, some of the more kind of boutique uh, distributors that are coming around town. But what I, what I can tell from you know, a consumer with a bit of knowledge's standpoint, um, is 
is this wine list have balance? Is it all like everything on this list is the same kind of wine from the same kind of vintage in the same price range? Or, you know, oh, this is a nice list. It's got, you know, I can get something for $35 a bottle. I can get something for $200 a bottle. And there's a range in between there of, you know, light reds and heavy reds and from different areas of the world and, 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 and you know, you guys can see that and you know, oh look, they got from this producer or from this distributor and this distributor and this distributor. Whereas I'm just going in looking for an interesting wine and it's often a hunt through the the forest to kind of find those little gems. Yeah, no, it's actually it's a lot of work. And it shouldn't be you're eating dinner. It shouldn't be that much work. But it can be. Right. I mean for for me as a wine geek, you know, part 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 of Going out to dinner is sitting down with a nice wine list and looking at it and seeing it and sort of kind of yeah. mentally taking it in and then finding that, that that wine that I want. Yeah, I just don't know how much that applies to steakhouses with an audience that mostly went because they just wanted a steak as a you know right. They're not, not going to be no one's going to be forcing pork belly on. But, but a lot of those guys <laughs> might be the guys who are sitting there at dinner and having a, having a martini through dinner. Yeah, you know, or a Manhattan through dinner. So. Or we are talking about the wine consumer here, you know? I mean, the, I think the wine consumer ranges, but, um, you know, I think if, if you're doing something, you can kind of ignite your staff to be excited about it, too. And then they can kind of show people, yes, we have these, but, like, this is really great wine. We just tasted it. It comes from this, you know, like you were drinking Bouzeron, the Aligoté, which is a white burgundy and terrific. And, you know, just, like get some passion going in your staff and then they will sell a cool list. You mentioned cocktails and people drinking those through dinner. Okay. Uh, and it's, a you know, one thing you got to say for cocktails, it's a shorter list. There's eight of them. And it's, they're built out of pieces that you know. You know gin, you know bourbon sure. and so on. So it's decipherable in a way that wine isn't. And beer, obviously, is just something that you start with usually first in this country. Right. <laughs> you know? well, so how do you, you know, where, where do wine people come from? Because well, I don't know, you know, in their 20s, that's pretty rare unless you're in the industry, I guess. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons you find that is, I've been thinking about this a little bit lately, you know, a cocktail, you have this immediate connection with the guy making it. I mean, right. if you're sitting at the bar... The guy making your cocktail is feet from you. Yeah. In beer... And you beer, probably consulted with him at least a little. Oh Yeah, sure, sure. And when it comes to beer, you know, you could go to Half Acre and sit in the tap room that's next to the brewery where they're making the beer and talk to the guys who are making it. When it comes to wine, we're in the Midwest. I mean, sure, there's, there's some Michigan wines and there's some good wines coming out of there and things like that. But for the most part... When a wine manufacturer, a winemaker, or someone from the wine, a big winery comes to Chicago, what happens? He gets hooked up with his distributor. The distributor takes him around to key accounts, and they right. go and they, they, they press the palms at wine shops and at restaurants, and, and they might have a wine dinner that's $150, $200 a head that gets distributed, that gets you know, promoted to a very small group of people because they're only going to sell you know, 50 seats at this thing. Yeah. So where's the connection for the young consumer there? It, it doesn't exist. Well, the connection is you have to be like a midwife for the wineries. You have to like create that connection. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. the millennials are drinking more wine than any other. That's the crazy thing is if you look at the demographics, they're drinking a ton of wine. Yeah, but when I'm out, I don't see that. No, I don't either. We have a lot of young people shopping here, but I don't see young people drinking wine in restaurants. I don't. Yeah. And, maybe, and, maybe, and maybe that goes into uh, price points, you know? Um, that's, you know, listen, we have a huge... Maybe the reason some of the restaurants can't afford dedicated wine people is because they're not selling as much wine, and, and so that's kind of a double-edged sword. And so maybe it's a, a situation where you know those people that, that are really into wine, I know a lot of people that are really into wine, and yet they're still big BYOBers. They still go to restaurants yeah. that have lists and bring in bottles and pay the corkage fee because they feel that, you know, why would I spend that much money on um, on a bottle of wine? I mean, this wine costs $50 in retail, so why am I paying $200 or $250 uh, on a wine list when I can just bring in another bottle that they don't have on their list? And so it's a trickle-down thing, right? Because that that's the person with the most knowledge, with the most right. passion, and they're already de-incentivizing restaurants from from uh, having this staff. And then you have the opposite reaction from younger people. You know, we do a lot of value wine here at the store, very proud of what we do with 10 to $15 bottles. And that's where we see yeah. a lot of that younger generation start. And so how does that translate on a wine list? I mean, maybe that's... You know, do we see restaurants that have a lot of thirty, forty, fifty dollar bottles? So yeah, it's really getting in people in one on on a price point, and, and two also just on you know making it fun and trying to make it fun. And I think you brought a great point with the wine dinner thing. It's something that I never thought about with all those wine dinners be, being super high end. Um, you know, that's a great way to introduce people. Uh, and get people excited about wine as meeting winemakers and having fun events and and maybe you know maybe we have to look at that how do we do stuff and and uh, make it fun and do it in a, in a cost effective manner I think it's a really have good point. more of those in, in pizza places and things like yeah that. Right. I mean, that stuffy wine dinner of the the nineties and the two thousands is just I mean and they're still out there though like, they are yeah we haven't progressed I mean I was no. just having this conversation last night. With uh, with Abraham Conlon, I was stopped by Fat Rice and I helped them with their wine list. And we were talking about doing some wine dinners. And, and literally, this is not a made up story for this podcast. I said, so how can we make it fun? What can what can we do to make this fun and make it unique? So something that we're trying to figure out. I mean, it's something that. Well, I think one thing too about the wine dinners is, I mean, it's it's a dedicated wine event, yeah. and you're gonna you're gonna taste like six or seven things. You're probably gonna drink. You know more glasses than you may entirely feel comfortable with. You know, I think of something like you know Telegraph, rest in peace, which had they do a theme like the one I, one I went to was the Sicilian thing, and they pair right. it with Sicilian wines. I mean, you had like three half pours at the end of it, so it didn't cost that much. You weren't getting hammered on Tuesday night. All those things. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I find is that particularly with the younger consumer they need more of a connection to their product before they're going to put their money out to buy it. Mm -hmm. And again, with that cocktail, you got that immediate connection. With the beer, you got that immediate connection. When it comes to wine, it really becomes dependent on whoever is that point of sale person to tell that interesting story mm -hmm. to get the younger consumer interested in maybe trying a wine instead of a beer or a cocktail. 
You know, it's funny because I'm finding that, you know that in my generation, like you always went to Europe with a backpack for, for three months and it was, you went on Arthur Frommer's $30 a day. <laughs> you can't do that anymore. And I'm wondering, because I think a lot of people sort of uh, begin to understand wine culture and countries that produce wine when, when they go and, and away from maybe the more, I don't know, strict American standards about when you drink wine. And I wonder if less kids are doing that just because it's so expensive now because of the euro and everything. They don't have that point of reference, you know, yeah. to yeah. drink wine at lunch. I mean, yeah. that's like verbatim here. I like it, but... <laughs> I, I'm, I encourage day drinking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> permanent wine selections. We find the creativity level goes way, way up. That's, so. what, that's when we write. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. Well, you know, though, um, I remember when we were in the south of France 20 years ago, we went to some, you know, multi-Michelin star restaurant in, uh, you know, in a, in a in wine country in the Rhone somewhere, and it was full of English people drinking Lynch Beiges, you know. <laughs> Lunch bags. Lunch bags, exactly. <laughs> you know, which is basically ordering a Coke because you don't know what else to get off the menu. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, I think that's a world problem. I don't know. But, but you're right, certainly, that, that you can ease into wine culture. I mean, I even allowed my children to take a sip when we were here in Rome. Uh, I always allowed my child to drink, yeah. and I was drinking when I was eight. I mean, I was drinking at the dinner table yeah. with water. And now, you know, DCFS will be at your door. Yes, they will. She did call. not put that on her resume, by yeah. the way. This could have a serious <laughs> There's bios all over. Okay. You could have read okay. about okay. it. Let's go to wine writing. There's, there are people who write about wine, like Bill St. John, but they're not writing about, as you said, restaurants. Right. Uh, I think in, in a follow-up comment on the Facebook thing, that it's, it's really anybody looking at restaurants. The, the critics tend not to do that. I mean, Phil Vitell, I don't remember him particularly writing about wine. No, he just, uh, he wrote in the last, and I'm not calling out Phil, because I think he's great, but the last two reviews were Saris or Cheris's Table uh-huh. and Parachute. And both wine lists got one sentence. And they're both very good wine lists. Yep. Yeah. Very, very good wine lists that deserve more than one sentence. And it was really more about the pricing of the wine list and the parachute. Uh... And that was a shame to me. Yeah. Because Scott Manlin and Maddie Colston worked really hard on those lists. Yeah, right. Well, and, and series, or however you said, um, was one of the ones that you wrote about yeah. in your blog post. Yeah. That you were calling out as a, That she scooped a, me on. Right. And Sorry, you, I, I was know. writing it. I, I read you about the same thing. I think there was a collective <laughs> consciousness happening. Or maybe there's just th- only three restaurants with good wine. So, well, but, and then yeah, I don't know where, I mean, I write about wine once in a while, but it's usually from the perspective of my general ignorance. And uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know where, where would wine writers comfort if we're not making 20 year old drinkers we're not making 20 year old wine writers either so yeah no that's a very very good point well um, one question I mean I have actually not to turn the tables but of you guys is you know working in the media what's what's the restriction that's that's placed on you I mean do do the do the you know newspapers blogs magazines whatever do they actually even want to hear about it or do they do not does the tribune say to phil Battelle, hey you have i mean they do obviously give him a word count in terms of how much space he can have but um 
you know, do they say, hey, you know, wine's not that interesting, so don't even focus on it? Or because I don't know, I'm not. Not to my knowledge, but you know, underneath, are they picking? You know, when they hire a writer, is it the one who writes more about the food and less about the wine? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think there's a definite separation between the wine writer and the food writer. You know, they have wine writers at the papers. Right. There, there's Peter Hoyne at the Sun Times. Uh, there's Bill St. John. Um, you know, these guys are out there. What kind of wine writing are they doing? Well, they're doing more criticism than anything they're you know go taste this wine or that wine i'm going to taste five of these kinds of wines and write about them and give them a little score and it's so the consumer shoppers. could go up yeah it's really for shopper a shopper rather than diners uh, right yeah. for sure yeah i mean i know bill really well i think yeah. he he's a good friend of ours and and uh, i think he writes more from i mean he's one of the great educators and he writes more from a you know, kind of uh, an educational standpoint. And, and so I think that's necessary and that's great. And I, I like, what I like about Asimov and why I say can we clone them is that like, uh, one, he does do these pieces where he'll highlight restaurants. He does do these pieces that are very focused more on kind of going out and bringing that almost travel aspect to it as right. well and that connection to that place, which I like a lot because that's, for me, what what wine is is really about? It's a it's a connection to those places. What makes it so interesting is just that you have uh, that that history and that culture and the travel aspect. And so he really pulls pulls that into it. And so that I don't know if we have that aspect of wine writing in Chicago yet. And I and I, it's one that I like quite a bit. And I think it actually helps breed more wine drinkers because people really, you know, there's, there might be a, a huge influx of people into Aruligi in the French Basque region right now because no, Asimov did a, a nice piece about that. No, a place we got where, telephone calls about Aruligi, which is crazy. Right, which is, I mean, it's one of the smallest appellations in France and here's somebody that writes about this far off, you know, obscure place and all of a sudden you have interest in it. He but did. that's someone who's already interested in wine who's reading that. Right. Someone who's not interested in wine isn't going to read that yeah. column. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that there, you're right that it, it does appeal to the, the um, well-educated wine person. But I think there's enough, uh, you know, of a romanticism about it that even somebody that, that doesn't know a ton that's starting to learn, I think it still appeals to them. So. But that kind of writing depends on travel, and right. nobody has travel budgets anymore. Right. I, I was just going to say, I don't think the Tribune would sell, send Bill St. John to Rui Guy. I don't think they have that kind of money anymore. Right. right. Well, and I know that uh, another writer was approached about writing for something. I don't even remember what it was now. But the basically the the job descriptions, you know, amounted to independently wealthy person interested in wine. You know, go fund your own travels and, and we'll publish it. There you go. And that's just the reality of it today. I think you know, you, you if you want to talk a lot about cocktails, as say Mike Sula does, you, as you said, you can just go sit down and talk with that guy. Yeah. But the producer in Arugula, Spain, whatever that was, France, <laughs> uh, you know, that I never heard of. It's almost know, Spain. It's right. almost Spain. Uh, you know, getting to talk to that guy is, is a whole different proposition. So. Right. You're absolutely right. All right. So each of you, give me a restaurant that you would send people to to have this accessible experience. You know, not, not a $200 bottle at Spiaggia or something, but something where people 
can get it into it at, a, at an accessible level. Who wants to start off? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think... Oh, goodness. I mean, I think Scott Manlin's list at... And I, don't, I wish I knew how to pronounce Sarah's. I think it's Sarah's table. Sarah's yeah, table, yeah, yeah. I think, is very accessible. Um, and I also think that Aldo's list um, at Osteria Lange was, I mean, you can get a great bottle of wine for $42 or that Vietti Castiglione for $72. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and it's kind of redundant, I know, but I just spent a lot of time looking at both of those lists before I wrote the blog post. Um, and so they are, they're on my mind. Um, for, you know, just going and having an experience where you're just eat the wines on the table and you're eating some food and you're talking to the people and it's not super precious or like, you know, hush hush or chef has prepared for you tonight a wonderful squab from the province of Ontario. You know, so, yeah. Well, it's interesting, interesting that you mentioned Osteria Vangit because it's a region focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah play at restaurants, so it has a region-focused list, clearly, uh, Pimante, and that makes it easy, because you, you can narrow mm. it down, as opposed mm. to these giant... Well, except you think about some of the most expensive wines in the world are Barolo, so you really have to get creative if you're going to be in Piemonte and go to the small, never-heard-of-before DOPs to find the value, and that's the challenge there because you are limited by some very, very expensive and real people estate. People think it's all reds, and there you bring in Arnais and yeah. Favorita and Nachetta and yeah. Riesling and Chardonnay, and so you do have to kind of uh, go out of your way to really do uh, some good research and, and bring some fun fun things that are value oriented. So okay, so like I was saying, it's not easy at all. It's so. not. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right, John. Um, I think uh, what Maddie Colstead Parachute's doing is absolutely brilliant, um, as well as Liz Mendez at Farrell. Um, I knew you were going to say her, so... Well, because here's, here's why I like... Here's what I really love about what those two people are doing. They're bringing you wines that... And, and they're selling wines that are super intriguing, but they're not easy to order for the consumer. You know, I, you look at the list and you go, wow, what is, what is Jacquard? You know, the average consumer isn't going to know that, and they're going to have to ask. Boom, the conversation has started. And, yeah, that's a bit of a challenge because sometimes people don't want to ask. Sometimes they're intimidated to ask. But anything they can do to get the conversation started, they're doing it. And I think their lists, just how they're put together encourage that conversation and then you could Liz when you talk to her about wine she just her whole person lights up and you can see how just passionate she is and that passion rubs off on, on, on you when you're when you're talking wine with Liz yeah, yeah. she's so, def she's definitely a wine cheerleader for so sure. yeah and, and, <laughs> and Manny has put together a list that's like all these really unusual intriguing wines that I would have until last week thought might be off-putting to people who don't know much about wine but maybe want to order a glass. But then I found out that actually it may actually be the conversation starter that gets these people into wine. So that, you know, nothing against Napa Chardonnay. But, right. you know, that's an easy wine to order. Right. It doesn't require a conversation. So right. maybe it just gets right passed right by for a beer or a cocktail. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
Well, I'll continue with uh, some West Loop love, and I'll talk about Arthur Hahn over at Sepia, who does a, a great job uh, with that list. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty broad list. It covers a lot. Uh, he's got uh, some you know nice focus pages too, kind of at the beginning where he'll focus on you know a specific uh, region or, or topic. Uh, I think you know no. Of course, we have the you know, insight into what people pay for wine. So we kind of know, and I can say that I think it's a very fairly priced list, uh, especially for the level of food, which, you know, that's one of my, my favorite restaurants in Chicago. It's a great, great place. So, and, and Arthur's there, he's on the floor, and I think his staff is really knowledgeable. And, and so, I, you know, it's, it's really, for me, a, a, a great place. And since you guys each got two, uh, then I will take uh, one more. And, uh, Something lower end than than, than CBA. Okay. Uh, darn you. Well, you just got uh, challenged. Yeah, <laughs> no, I did. It is challenging at that lower end. It, it, it really it, is. It sure. Is. Well, it's easy to put together a home run list, right? right? Yeah. Well, you well I think in the world. I think. Uh, well, so Scott just uh, opened up MFK. Uh, oh, I think yeah. that's a place that has a really nice wine list, and and he's a huge wine person and, and that's uh, definitely a list from his point of view and there's lots of affordable stuff on that list. I mean, I can definitely say, although this is, uh, you know, I don't know, because since I do the list, but fat rice, uh, <laughs> pat on my back. No, I mean, we have, listen, the fat rice list came about where Abe said, hey, uh, if you want to help put together a list, and I said, sure, but we've got to go out and find some really interesting, unique Portuguese stuff. So we actually took a trip, me, Abe, and Adrian, and went over there looking at small producers, helped some producers get uh, importation into the into the Chicago market. So we, we took that extra step. We have plenty of wines on there that are, you know, 35, 40, you know, $50. We have a, a carafe wine that we do, uh, a white, house white and house red. So for people that really don't want to um, think too hard about it and just want a nice glass of wine, we have that. Um, so, I mean, I think MFK, Fat Rices are two places up, up north that, that do a really nice, you know, nice job. And, and That's three. Three, sorry. Three. Okay. <laughs> you can have three. Uh, well, yeah, I think of those as places that are exactly the kind of place I'm thinking about that where it needs to be accessible. The restaurant isn't that fancy, but it's of some artistic seriousness or whatever you want to call right. it. And the wine should match that, being serious but still, you know, pretty accessible, pretty affordable. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah, so we need we need more more of those places, and I think... You know, I think hopefully this this discourse will get get that going. So I'm sure we've changed everything. We've changed the world today. today. I'm very proud to say we've changed the world today. <laughs> all right, thank you all. <laughs> Perman Wine Selections is at 802 West Washington in Chicago. John Leonard's writings on wine appear at chicagoist.com. get you down you get up and mumble back in episode two you heard a story i read at an event called fet chicago about dining in ethnic restaurants with my kids 
Well, Fed Chicago's story event kind of led to a thing called Between Bites, in which food writers tell stories to a live audience. I really like the ones I've been to. I always come away impressed with how sharp and funny people I only know by their bylines are. The next Between Bites will be on October 20th at Frontier. I'll have the link for tickets and more info in the show post. But I read another story about my life in Chicago before kids at the last one, held at Homestead in July. Here's that story, beginning with my introduction by the lovely and talented Molly Each of the Sun-Times. Our next reader is a food multimedia guru. He runs the Sky Full of Bacon website, where he covers an insane amount of territory, writing posts on seemingly every restaurant in the city, big or small, and he features interviews on his podcast, um, Airwaves Full of Bacon. He's also doing incredible work over at the Chicago Reader, where he writes and also produces the Key Ingredient video series. He also contributes to Thrillist and was the Chicago editor of Grub Street Chicago and has also performed his work for Second Story. Please welcome Mike Gebert. That guy sounds cool. i got to meet him sometime. <laughs> All right, so the name of my story is The Squeezonk of Tolerance. And warning, I sing in it. <laughs> you can be on the outside of something and not know it until you find a way inside that you didn't know was there. That was how, one night many years ago, I finally found my way into Chicago, for which I have a long-gone Mexican nightclub to thank. I always had dreams of living in a big city. Specifically, I wanted to work in New York for Mad Magazine, like Don Martin, the guy who drew the grotesque people with the bulbous noses and the frizzy hair and the the shoes that sort of bent up at 90 degrees and went squeeze-onk, squeeze-onk with every step. <laughs> Instead, in time, I came to Chicago and went to work at an ad agency, which I think was doing pretty well, childhood ambition-wise. You know, give me a B plus, come on. As far as I'm concerned, the main goal in life is just to avoid being the guy in the Bruce Springsteen song who works at the car wash in his small town and missed his dreams. And at night he hears the shoes going squeeze on, but he'll never write for Mad Magazine. <laughs> so, you know, I was happy to be here. But at the same time, I have to admit, it kind of terrified me. You kind of terrified me. I mean, I'd been to big cities with scary parts. I drank Campari in a dodgy bar in Munich when I was 16. I'd eaten barbecue at Arthur Bryant's in the ghetto in Kansas City. Okay, admittedly, Kansas City is one of those places where even the ghetto is kind of cute and charming. <laughs> oh, Marge, aren't these crack dens just quaint? <laughs> but as soon as I got here, Chicago went out of its way to let me know that it was a scary place, a very consciously segregated place with lots of invisible lines you didn't want to cross. That was in the media, but it was also in the way that people talked about places like the South Side or Cabrini Green. <laughs> I mean, I lived in an apartment in Buena Park up by Uptown once, and another real estate agent told me to call in later if I managed to survive visiting that area. This was a time so hung up on race that there was one restaurant, Valois Cafeteria down in Hyde Park, that was famous for the incredible fact that blacks and whites actually spoke to each other there. I mean, a guy from the UFC got an entire book out of that. So as much as I wanted to explore my new city, you also kind of freaked me out. 
I hugged the shoreline of Yuppieville because everyone was telling me that death awaited out there. <laughs> I had very clear ideas of what every square on the map was about. Yuppies, guppies, drunken DePaul students, death. <laughs> so this one night, my sister Jenny was staying with us at the time, as she tended to do, that is, move in with whoever she knew who had just moved somewhere interesting. And my friend Patrick, a producer for a video house I was doing some work with, suggested that we all go to a bar a few blocks away. I don't remember exactly what he said we were in for that evening. I only know he clearly did not tell me the truth about it. It turned out to be a Mexican bar called El Gato Negro. Okay, half the audience just guessed the punchline. Uh, on Irving Park, just west of Southport. This was well within the, the mental squares in my head that said Irving and Southport was a safe area, a gentrifying, modern area. <laughs> we opened the door and El Gato Negro was, it turned out, a rat hole. Painted in black because that meant you never had to clean it. A notion confirmed by how it smelled, too. <laughs> Half the room had been arbitrarily designated as a stage, pretty theoretically. And there was a Mexican band there playing Mexican tunes while a few red-faced men sat at tables, already bleary-eyed enough that they looked like they might pass out for the evening while it was still technically <laughs> afternoon. We order beers and chat among ourselves as the band finishes one song. Then I overhear the band leader say something about a song for Nos Amigos Americanos, our American friends. Here we are still in my Lakeview zip code, but we're the foreigners. But to make us feel welcome, the band breaks into the one Mexican song that, of course, will be familiar and comforting to foreigners from that great faraway land of America. La 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 bamba. After that, they continue playing, and I see that the place has a number of I don't even know what you call them now. In like an old 30s movie, you would have called them Dime a Dance Girls. I don't know, does anyone know? I don't know. Um, but it was Mexican women in tight black dresses dancing with these bleary-eyed Mexican working men who probably left their wives or girlfriends back home to make money in America. So for a little female companionship on Friday, they come here and pay to dance and cop a feel. The place fills up as this evening goes on. One of the dancing gals comes to sit and chat with us for a bit. Maybe we stood out a little, I'm just guessing. <laughs> My sister Jenny, who worked as a waitress then, found an easy rapport with her. I was a little more awkward, like a million times more awkward. <laughs> but part of being a writer is supposed to be being able to listen to people's stories. So we chat for a bit about the life she's living in America. At some point, she decides it would probably be good to actually do her job. So I get dragged down on the dance floor. It's not easy to dance to Mexican music while trying not to look at your friends laugh, laughing their asses off at you. The tallest, whitest thing on the dance floor. We must have looked like Salma Hayek dancing with Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> anyway, at one point she says, you know, a lot of the girls here are not ladies. I want to be gallant, so I say, oh, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I haven't seen them allow anything too untoward. <laughs> no, she says. They are not ladies. <laughs> and at last I get it. Not ladies as in, do look like a lady. As in, hello, hello, Lola. There are women with Adam's apples and shoulders for playing football all around me. Somehow, while I was sitting there, clueless as only a rube from Kansas could be, El Gato Negro had morphed into a transgender bar. 
And that night, I would have an experience that would change my outlook forever. No, not that kind. It isn't that kind of story about being in and coming out. But El Gato Negro helped shatter everything people had been telling me about how rigidly segregated and stratified Chicago was into these neat little squares of semi-hostile identity. This bar was in Yuppieville, and yet it was Mexican, and yet it was transgender, and yet everybody was cool with that and with us being there too. The city which tried so hard to portray itself as divided into insiders and outsiders, into little Cold War zones of ethnicity, was in reality all mixed together. Far from being divided like a map of the Balkans, it was playing three-dimensional identity chess because people wanted it that way. You know, in the words of the great scientist Jeff Goldblum, life finds a way. <laughs> but not done. Um, <laughs> and so in time, I stopped fearing Chicago. I found that I could pretty much go anywhere and do what I wanted to do, which was eat whatever they made there. And people would mostly think it was kind of great that I was interested in their food. I don't mean I'm stupid. It's still a big city with an appalling murder rate. And there are places I know better than to be at certain times of the day. But all in all, it's just a city with people in it, not tribes of enemies, not divided into one of us or stay out. El Gato Negro Strip is hipsterfied now. The space is a tattoo parlor, and a couple of doors down, you can get Southern Carolina, South Carolina fried chicken for hipsters at The Roost, and bubble tea at Joy E, and there's a Thai place and a Filipino social services office that used to be a Latino Alcoholics Anonymous, and so on. <laughs> Which is to say, like so many blocks, it's Chicago in miniature, just as El Gato Negro kind of was in its very odd way. Most of all, it's my city, and I can walk down most any part of it. Squeeze onk, squeeze onk. What me worry? Thanks once again for listening. And thanks to Elena Reagan, Tanya Pierce, and Getty Sikora for taking me frog gigging, to Henry Adania, to Craig Perman, Shebnam Inja, and John Leonard, and to Molly Each, Rachel Gilman Rochelle, and Liz Grossman at Between Bites and the Homestead. Don't miss the next Between Bites on October 20th at Frontier with Kevin Bame, the lovely Ina Pinckney, Chuck Sudo, and others. I'll have the link for tickets in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. This is episode 14.